on through. It is the idea that Jesus is the winner. He's the champion. Uh, there used to be a song the cathedral sang called Champion of Love. And uh, that truly is who Jesus is. He is the champion over every foe, everything that could come against him. He is the victor. And uh, we can sing victory uh, because victory really is in Jesus. And it says that as we stand in Christ, that we appropriate the victory that he's bought for us. So look, if you will, the um, uh, last two weeks we've looked at worshiping Jesus, Revelation 4 and 5. And that context, I think, is very important for what we're going to come to in Revelation uh, chapter 6. And so look, if you will, to chapter 6, verse 1, where the Bible says, Now I saw when the Lamb, that's Jesus, remember the lion and lamb from last time, now I saw when the Lamb opened one of the seals, and I heard one of the four living creatures saying with a voice like thunder, Come and see. Now, there are some terrible things that happen on the face of the earth. There's some terrible things happening on the face of the earth tonight. Uh, there's war in Ukraine tonight that is beyond what you and I can really appreciate or imagine. Tens of thousands of troops have been killed on both sides in that war. Now, thousands of civilians in Ukraine uh, have been killed as a result of that war. Uh, more than five uh, million people are internally displaced, which means they're still in the Ukraine, but they're not where they, they're not in their home. Five million people displaced. Eight million have fled the country of Ukraine and are living as refugees. So that's 13 million people tonight that aren't in their home because of a war. It's really, really a terrible uh, thing. One in three families in Ukraine, r roughly 11 million people, are food insecure, which means they don't have enough to eat. 11 million people are in danger of not having enough to eat. Uh, nearly a third, around 33% of the population, is unemployed. Can you imagine 33% unemployment rate going on in your country? So this is really, really a terrible thing. Landmines and other war debris are preventing them, uh, many of their farmers from planting. And that's one of the breadbaskets of the world. This has uh, repercussions uh, further than just uh, the Ukraine. Terrible, terrible kind of things. Uh, we heard, and this is hard for us to imagine our country, but just a month or so ago, a 7.8 magnitude earthquake uh, hit in Turkey and Syria. And that's resulted in the deaths of 54,000 people. That's more than the population of Covington County. I mean, Covington County is what, 33, 35,000 people population? That's, that's everybody in Covington County plus perishing. Uh, you know, not all of them right off, but I mean, an earthquake only takes four or five seconds, and the, the, all this place is just completely uh, leveled. There are some seriously bad times amongst our fellow human beings tonight. As we think about songs, I texted Rhonda, it's like, you know, <laughs> there's not a whole lot of uplifting songs going along with Revelation chapter 6, you know. Uh, Credence Clearwater Revival said, I see a bad moon arising. <laughs> I see trouble on the way. I see earthquakes and lightning. I see bad times today. That's about the best song uh, I could think of with uh, Revelation chapter 6. We're going to look at Revelation chapter 6 tonight. And what we're going to see is while there are bad times happening on the earth tonight, it's going to get worse. This is not the worst of things that we're going or that the world is going 
to experience. What we're going to look at tonight as we walk through Revelation chapter 6 uh, is that we're going to see six of these seven seals. If you remember, uh, back in Revelation chapter 4, there was a scroll and uh, they were looking for somebody worthy to open the scroll. It was sealed up. Seals are these plastic wax things and you can't, you're not to damage it or open it uh, under penalty of who had the authority to put those seals on there. They were sealed by God himself and so they're crying out, who is worthy to open the seals and tonight what we're going to see is that Jesus is remember Jesus for the lambs the only one worthy to open the seals and they're going to peel them back one at a time tonight now you don't get the seventh seal until Revelation chapter 8 and it really is sort of the opening of the trumpet judgments and so it really kind of leads into the next one so we get uh, six seals open in Revelation chapter 6 tonight and we're going to look at it tonight and see what it means and as we come to Revelation chapter 6 and the rest of Revelation, it's good for us to come with a sense of uh, humility and, uh, and a sense of application. Because well-meaning people who love Jesus and love God's Word and are committed to Jesus with all their hearts have very different um, interpretations of the rest of the book. Uh, some people see it as uh, very literal and some people see it as very symbolic and you can make a strong case for either one of them. It's been very symbolic all the way up to here. One of the challenges in Revelation when you come to things uh, like a seven-year tribulation, a thousand-year millennium, and Jesus with a sword coming out of his mouth, the seven spirits of God with eyes up under his wings and all of that, some of this is clearly symbolic. It's hard to know where the symbolism ends and begins, you know, so it's really hard in any, most of the uh, Bible-believing commentaries I read are, are a little, have at least a little bit of humility saying, we can understand the main meaning here. Some of the details are a little bit, uh, some of the specifics you don't get too, too dogmatic about. It's helpful to remember. One of the things I think really helps us to remember is that John was writing to persecuted Christians in his day, okay? Uh, because a lot of people, especially most, a lot of the conservative preachers that you and I hear, teachers you and I hear, uh, they will say, and it's a great interpretation, probably the one that I, that I ascribe to the most. It's not the only one, but most of them would say from Revelation 6 to Revelation 18 is after the rapture, this is a seven-year tribulation and the church is not on the face of the earth. I believe that's probably true. I want it to be true. It's not the only interpretation, but here's the thing we need to remember. These chapters have to mean something more than you better get saved before the tribulation comes. Uh, that's a good interpretation, and that's something good to see. If when we read through these chapters and we read through these judgments and you're not saved, you had never given your heart and life to Jesus, it is a real warning to say if you don't give your heart and life to Christ, there are some horrific, horrific times coming that you really don't want to live through and uh, hopefully we won't be live. We don't believe we'll be living. I don't believe we'll be living through those things. But uh, I love what one guy said. He said, you know, I, and this guy is really, really strong in the book of Revelation, one of the most respected uh, preachers of the last century in Revelation. He said, I don't think so, but I don't want to live my life on a think so. <laughs> I want to live my life on a no so, right? And so what, do you, what, do, what I think the application is, what do we do when hard times come and hard times hit? I think that's the big application of Revelation 6 and the big application really for part of the, for a lot of the book because Revelation 6 is right after Revelation 4 and 5. And what I think he's saying to us is, look, when hard times hit, keep your eyes on Jesus. 
Worship Jesus. Keep Jesus center stage. Declare Jesus, no matter how hard times get, declare that Jesus is worthy for you to go through any hard time, any difficulty that we go through, any persecution which we may face, any hardship that we may encounter. Christ is our champion of love in the middle of it. That's not easy to do, right? That's difficult to keep our minds on. I think that's why we get two chapters of a scene from heaven before we get to the scene on earth. And so uh, these first four, um, first four seals, as we look at, have you ever heard of the four horsemen of the apocalypse? Uh, this is what that, that, that phrase refers to. So let's dig in a little bit tonight. And uh, well, one of the things that we'll be interested to see as we go along is how the opening of these seals relate to Matthew chapter 24 where Jesus talks about the coming tribulation. In Matthew 24, his disciples ask him, what will be the sign of your coming in the end of time? And he tells them what's the sign of his coming. And we're gonna, I'm going to show it to you tonight. But if you look at it, they run real parallel to the opening of the six seals in the book of Revelation. And, and interestingly enough, John is 20 years old, around 20, you know, 18 to 22 years old, and Matthew 24, that we're going to see tonight as we run a little bit side by side, he's probably 90 in Revelation chapter 6, and the Word hadn't changed at all, <laughs> right? The Word of God never changes. So let's um, look at the, I'm going to see two things tonight. First of all, the interpretation of the seals, what they mean, what's coming. And secondly, I want to look at the application. What does this mean for you and I today? Okay, so let's look at it. Revelation chapter 6, verse 2, New International Version. Now, as we look at these things, one of the things we need to remember is these are things that will happen. They're dead certain. It's not a, it's not a might it's not, it's not a, boy, here's some really scary things. Y'all better straighten up. Maybe they won't happen. It's not that. They're going to happen. This is thing, whatever interpretation you give to it, however you see it, uh, they're, they're, they're the prophecy of God, and Jesus is showing them to John. Look in Revelation 6, 2. John says, I looked. Notice there, the scroll is open, but John's not reading. He's seeing it. There's something different about reading about an event and being there, isn't it? And so John is going to see some horrific things. He's going to describe it to us in the best language that he has. I really believe that what he sees is beyond what he's able to put into words. But he does the best that he can for us to be able to understand him. And so there was before me a white horse. His rider held a bow and he was given a crown and he rode out as a conqueror bent on conquest. Now, some people, I don't believe this, some people believe this is Jesus because Jesus comes back in Revelation 19 riding on a white horse, uh, you know, robe dipped in blood with a sword, king of kings on his thigh. But I can't see Jesus being, this being Jesus. The only, the only similarity is the white horse. Uh, and this is, a, he's leading a series of disasters. And so I, I, while some people believe it's Jesus, I really think that's not a very good interpretation. I think one of the best interpretations is it's either a series of antichrists or the antichrist. There is a, 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 an antichrist prophesied in the Bible, 1 John 2. We'll look at that in a minute. It talks about a series of antichrists. But here he comes on a white horse. So the white horse, and, he, and the idea is he's, he's given a crown and he rose as a conqueror bent on conquest. And what a lot of us believe 
is that the Antichrist comes at the beginning of tribulation, and whether that's, you know, a series of events, a seven-year tribulation, or something longer than that, whatever it is, notice there he has a bow, but he doesn't have arrows. Probably meaning that he is coming at the beginning with talks of peace and the promise of peace. That this is going, that the Antichrist is going to be very deceptive, He's going to promise peace. It's going to sound good. But how many of you know that if you take the Prince of Peace out, there is no peace? And while you can have uh, momentary, uh, you know, cessation of war, momentary uh, lapses of economic hardships and things like that, uh, this warlike conqueror, and notice, he's bent on conquest. He wants to take over. We've seen a number of these kind of people in the history of the world, right? People bent on conquest, bent on taking over uh, the world. And he's given a crown, which means he'll have great authority. He's going to be able to have some authority. People are going to like him, and his aim is to conquer with his, print, with, with his idea of peace. Now, how many of you know, anytime a nation or an individual is bent on worldwide conquest, uh, peace is not going to last long. War is going to follow. Famine is going to follow. Destruction is going to follow. You look back through history and you can see this. And so this is probably a series of antichrists have kind of been that way throughout a history. First John 2.18, dear children, this is the last hour. And as you have heard, the antichrist is coming. Even now many antichrists have come. And this is how we know it's the last hour. Technically, we've been in the last hour, the last day since Acts chapter 2. Uh, it's, what, it's what Peter said on the day of Pentecost, what John writes here in 1 John chapter 2. And if you go back to Matthew 24, 5, one reason why many people believe this is the Antichrist and indeed the beginning of the Great Tribulation, look at what Jesus said in Matthew 24, 5. For many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah and will deceive many. Doesn't that sound like the Antichrist, right? I'm the hero. I'm the guy that's going to bring peace. I'm the guy that's going to bring worldwide uh, 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 prosperity, all that kind of stuff. But we know that only Jesus is a true prince of peace. So he's going to promise peace. Now what happens next? Look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 3 and 4, New International Version. When the Lamb opened the second seal, I heard the second living creature say, come. And then another horse, and, and don't see literal horses here. This is symbolic of what's taking place. Another horse came out, a fiery red one. Its rider was given power to take peace from the earth. This is why um, many of us believe that the uh, first horse is, is, is a representative of promising peace. Why? Because the second horse takes peace from the earth. So you can't take it if it's not there. And so this, this Antichrist comes, promises peace. Second horse, you're going to see the peace is going to be taken away. And to make people kill each other, to him was given a large sword. So the second horse is a red horse, symbolizes worldwide war. The promise of peace does not, it does not, does not take place. It does not play out. Symbolized by a rider with a large sword. And it was noticed it was granted to him to take peace. 
it's given by God, which tells us what? God is in control of all these things. They're not doing this on their own. They're not resting power away from God. It's not that the world's spinning out of control. It's not that God's been overpowered. It's going to look like it. But God is very clear. It was granted. Who granted them to take peace? Only God can grant that. He's opening the seals. Only Jesus has the power to open the seals. And so it's very clear, while the first rider is peace, the second rider is worldwide war. And the word kill here is not the usual word for kill. It's a word that means slaughter. This is not just people killing people. This is absolute slaughter taking place here. And the word for sword here is a word that can mean the sword is used in a war, but it can also use to mean an assassin's sword. And so you're looking at the possibility here, probability here, of worldwide war, assassin, revolt, coups, and a lot of people believe even civil wars taking place uh, at this point in history. Look at what uh, Matthew said in Matthew 24, what Jesus said. He says what? You will hear of wars and rumors of wars, but see to it that you are not alarmed. Such things must happen, but the end is still to come. Nation will rise against nation, and kingdom will rise against kingdom. Isn't it interesting how the prophecies of Jesus are walking right along with the seals of Revelation chapter 6? Look at the third one, Revelation 6, 5 to 6, New International Version. When the Lamb, that's Jesus, opened the third seal, I heard the third living creature say, Come, and I looked. Remember, he's not just reading, he's seeing it. And there before me was a black horse its rider was holding a pair of scales in his hand and then i heard what sounded like a voice among the four living creatures saying two pounds of wheat for a day's wages and six pounds of barley for a day's wages and do not damage the oil and wine the black horse represents famine worldwide shortage of food and you can see it once you have war what happens after war typically famine what's happening over the ukraine right now there a third of the people are food insecure when you look in refugees camps to see people starving and we're sending aid a lot of christian organizations send aid to the refugee camps a lot of times that's because of what it's because of war famine follows war you can't have war everywhere and have food not not plenty of food going on so john sees this coming and understands that when war happens you can't plant you can't work and the economy crumbles so the rider he sees is a black horse and interestingly enough he's holding a pair of scales in his hand that's an odd thing why is he holding a pair of scales in his hand because he's measuring out food this is famine he's measuring out food and when he says uh, in this passage of Scripture, uh, two, p two pounds of wheat for a day's wages, six pounds of barley for a day's wages, what he means by that, if you translate it in today's time, the best we can kind of figure is this. A whole day's work, that one day's paycheck for a common laborer is enough to buy a loaf of bread. So you can buy enough, uh, you can buy enough for yourself. You really can't buy enough for your family or you can buy three loaves of barley bread barley bread lower lower um lower um uh, uh, nutritious it's a lot of times they would put they would feed their animals and so this is bread that's not nearly as nutritious but you can get enough to feed your family for one day now you don't have enough gas for your car 
You don't have enough to pay electricity. You don't have enough to pay anything else. Uh, one guy said it equals the if, if best he could figure. And of course, a lot of these things are hard to figure out. But he said probably somewhere around 1,000% inflation. Can you imagine trying to exist in this economy on 1,000% inflation? You work in, it's, not, it's not complete starvation at this point. But you're working as hard as you can work to get enough food for the day. Just, just enough food uh, for today. Matthew chapter 24, verse 7, uh, the second half of that verse says, There will be famines and earthquakes in various places, and these are the beginnings of birth pains. And then he said, don't damage, don't damage the oil and the wine. Uh, two interpretations for this that I found that I, that, that I like the best, I think is most likely. Uh, one is, since you have so little wheat and barley, you need the oil and wine to mix together to cook with and try to stretch it and make it go further. And uh, that may be part of it, and I feel like that, that's a decent interpretation. Another interpretation is the oil and the wine belong to the rich. The, con the, the common day labor, the denarius is the common day labor. The common people are getting to the place of famine while the rich get richer. Those top levels of government, those who have control the purse strings and all that kind of stuff, uh, they, they still have money. They still have things. That's leaving, okay? It's not going to stay that way, but perhaps it's saying that the rich people, uh, you know, they're the only ones that have the oil and the wine, the commodities of the rich, and they keep getting richer while the, while the common people are beginning to really get hungry. Look, if you will, in verse 4, uh, uh, the fourth one, verse 7 and 8. Verse 7 and 8. When the Lamb opened the fourth seal, I heard the voice of the fourth living creature say, Come. I looked, and there before me was a pale horse. Its rider was named Death, and Hades was following close behind it. They were given power over a fourth of the earth to kill by sword, famine, and plague, and by the wild beast of the earth. The word here is the word Greek word chloros. The word for pale is the word Greek word chloros. We get our word chlorophyll from, which is green. And so probably the pale horse would... The, Probably a sickly green yellow, the color of death, the color of a decaying corpse is what he's talking about. And he said, this rider is bringing death. Well, I mean, think about it. You've had, world, you've had war, you've got famine. I mean, what comes on the heels of war and famine? Obviously, there's going to be an awful lot of death coming in. Once again, once again, power was given. He didn't take it. God allow, God is allowing. To, see, there's two kinds of God's will. There's God's perfect will and God's permissive will. God's perfect will is that everybody comes to Jesus and gets saved. Right? God's not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. God's permissive will is he gives us freedom of choice. And by choosing against Christ, by choosing against God, this world is setting itself on a course that intersects with the wrath of God. And so that's what, this is not perfect will, this is permissive will that he's talking about here. And he said death wipes out one-fourth of the world's population. That's five times the population of the United States. That, that would be equal to the uh, roughly equal to the population of China and the United States. Fourth of it gone. We're I mean, no matter how you try to interpret that, no matter how you try to think about that, that's horrific. Okay? That's beyond the scope of what you and I can really think about and put in our minds. And it says there, 
um, that it was sword famine, and it would get plague or pestilence, plague or pestilence. This could be disease, and this is, you know, it would have been fairly easy for John to, because they didn't have antibiotics and things like that, but it's even, it's just as easy for us to think about. Think about a pestilence it could be something like we saw in COVID. It could be something like the disease from chemical weapons, radiation from nuclear warfare, and you put all three of those things together, can you see how pestilence could wipe out an awful lot of people in a really big hurry? We've already, we've already seen with all of our medical technology that one virus released on our population, and we're in a world of hurt. And uh, as much as our scientists work hard, and much as they try to catch up, and much as they try to come up with things to help us, uh, there's possibilities of viruses and things out there that we can't deal anything about. Power was given by God for these things to happen. There's going to be problems with these kind of things, famine, war. you got health problems. you got sanitation problems. you got all manner of disease problems. In World War One. In World War I, uh, 16 million uh, troops were killed. In World War I, 20 million died in flu epidemics. And then he says also, it will be also some are going to be killed by wild beasts. Uh, some think, uh, you know, wild beasts like lions, tigers, and things like that will be roaming uh, the streets, uh, you know, looking for food and things like that because the food's going to be wiped out. Their food supply is going to get wiped out as well. John Phillips had an interesting interpretation here of this passage. Listen to what John Phillips said. The most destructive creature on earth so far as mankind is concerned is not the lion or the bear but the rat. It has killed more people than all the wars in history. Makes its home wherever man is found. Rats carry as many as 35 different diseases. Their fleas carry bubonic plague, which killed a third of the population of Europe in the 14th century. So it doesn't just have to be some kind of wild, big tiger or whatever. You're looking at all manner of things being set loose on the face of the earth. And now look in Revelation chapter 6. And uh, uh, this is going to be the fifth seal. The fifth seal and the scene moves from earth Back to heaven for a little bit. Look at uh, chapter 6, verses 9 through 11, the New International Version. When you open the fifth seal, I saw, once again, John's seeing all this. I saw under the altar the souls of those who had been slain because of the word of God, the testimony they had maintained. They called out in a loud voice, saying, Sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood. Then each of them was given a white robe and were told to wait a little longer until the full number of their fellow servants, their brothers and sisters, were killed just as they had been killed. These are the martyrs. A martyr is someone who is killed because of their faith in Christ. Because they shared Christ, they testified about Christ, they said Jesus saves, Jesus is coming, Jesus is God, Jesus is the only place of rescue, Jesus is the only hope for mankind, and they were threatened, they're going to be threatened with death, this happens all the time. And so, you know, a lot of people see this as just the martyrs that happened during the revelation, or during the tribulation period. That's very possible. That's what that means. But God's people are giving their life for Christ today. There are martyrs. And, and I, once in a while, I'll bring a, uh, uh, bring a sermon illustration from the voice of the martyrs. And, uh, and I try not to do too many of those, but once in a while, I do want to bring one of those in where people are killed for their faith. Sometimes they're poisoned by their own families, beaten by their own families, just to give us a little bit of a reminder that while things are hard for us sometimes, they could be a lot worse. This is normal Christianity for much of the world and for much of the, uh, much of the church's history has been persecution. And so, uh, 
you got to look at this and see the martyrs are there. Uh, they've been put to death. Matthew 24, 9. Then you will be handed over to be persecuted and be put to death. And you will be hated by all nations because of me. It's an interesting phrase there. They're under the altar. Um, and what altar is that? We don't know. This is an altar in heaven, so I mean, there's no way for us to really know. If it's based on the temple, uh, uh, the Jewish temple, there's two possibilities for this. And I love what John MacArthur said. He's like, you know, I've read pages and pages and hundreds of pages about what the altar is, and I still don't know what it is. <laughs> there's just no way to know for sure. But it's interesting if you think about it, two um, Two altars in the Jewish temple. One is the altar of sacrifice where the animals were sacrificed, okay? This could very well represent them. They were sacrificed on behalf of Jesus to get his message out to other people. The other one is the altar of incense, which is, the, which is symbolic of the prayers of, our, of God's people ascending to him. We saw the golden bowls with the prayers of the saints. And so they're praying uh, so that could be, either one of those altars could be fine. The truth is we don't know what the altar is, but what we do know is it represents a place of privilege and safekeeping. They were in the presence of God. They were not being harmed anymore. They can never be harmed again. They see Christ for who he is, and they cry out for vindication. They cry out with a loud voice. And, and the word for Lord here is stronger than the usual word for Lord. They're crying out for the vindication of God. God, it's not just for retribution. It's just not those people uh, killed us, now you get them back. I mean, think about Jesus. Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. Think about Stephen. Lord, don't hold this charge against them. They're saying, Lord, the whole world is revolting against you. The whole world is blaspheming your son. Lord, how long will you allow people to treat you and treat your son uh, this way. And so they are the overcomers. The Bible says they're given a white robe. Now, typically in Scripture, white robe talks about salvation. I don't think it can mean, some people say that means that here. I don't think it can mean that here because they're already in heaven. <laughs> they're already saved. They're already there. Well, the white robe was not just about purity. White robes were given to people in the athletic games as a sign of victory. These are, those, uh, these are representative of those in the seven churches. Remember those who overcame. Those who overcame. Well, these are the overcomers. These are the overcomers. And it looked like they lost, but they won. They're in a, they're in a place of privilege and safekeeping before Almighty God. What better place can you be than that place? And so they have won. That's why you've heard me say before, and I, you, if you've ever heard me preach someone who was a faithful Christian and uh, they died from cancer, most of the time in those funerals I will say, so-and-so, uh, people will say about so-and-so, they lost their battle with cancer. And I'll say, no, they won. If you're a Christian and you're faithful all the way through and you die and go to be with the Lord and you are an influence and a testimony for Jesus, that cannot be losing. It's got to be a win. And so they, these guys have won their battle. And Jesus basically says to them, you don't have to be concerned about what's happening on the earth. Take your rest. Now, he's not talking about taking a nap. Enjoy where you're at. I'll take care of things on earth in the perfect time. Look at Revelation chapter 6, verses 12 to 14. And we'll get to the last seal for tonight. Now, watch as he opened the sixth seal. There was a great earthquake. 
The sun turned black like sackcloth made of goat hair. The whole moon turned to blood red. And the stars in the sky fell to the earth as figs dropped from a fig tree when shaken by a strong wind. The heavens receded like a scroll being rolled up. And every mountain and island was removed from its place. This is a catastrophic earthquake. Catastrophic, a lot of people think, worldwide earthquake. Now, when that happens, what happens? The dust and sediment, all kinds of things from the earth come rising up into the sky. That may be very well what causes the sun to turn black. I mean, if the sun didn't shine, we'd cease to exist, right? And so it's the it's this illusion that the sun has turned black. It's this illusion that the moon has turned red. I think it's probably because of the particles uh, in the air. Uh, it, what happens here is a complete breakup of the cosmic system. When he says the stars fall to the earth, and we know that can't be literal because one star hits the earth and it's done, right? I mean, it's the stars are so much bigger uh, than the earth. Some people see this as meteorites and asteroids hitting the earth. That can possibly be. It's very possible this is symbolic of saying there is disaster here beyond what you're capable of imagining. Stars falling like figs off a fig tree. The sky is being rolled up like we can't roll the sky up. What's it saying? This is, this is a total, complete breakup, breakdown of the cosmic system as we know it today. And people, and it's such a horrific thing. I mean, things are escalating faster and faster here. We're going to see that with the judgment of the trumpets in a couple of chapters. Things are escalating quickly here, and they're getting worse and worse and worse, and it's, and it's compounding getting worse and worse and worse. So much so in verse 15, Revelation 6, then the kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. They called to the mountains and rocks, fall on us, hide from us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? Now, no matter how you interpret that, it's awful. And if you notice there, it says, from the wrath of the Lamb. Now think about that for a minute. We don't usually associate wrath and lamb together. Nobody has a watch lamb, you know. You don't go to somebody's house, there's a sign of beware of lamb, <laughs> you know. But Jesus is the lion and the lamb, right? And there is going to be, there is coming a day when judgment and wrath falls upon the face of the earth. And people all oftentimes thought, is America under the judgment of God and all this kind of stuff? Look, it's coming one day, and the day that it comes fully, notice people's reactions. They're crying out for rocks to fall on them. They're fleeing. They're, they're, I mean, they're in complete abject horror and fear. The lesson for us here is what? The only place to hide from the Lamb is in the Lamb. Right? So let's look at the application. First of all, four, three or four applications real quick. First of all, what's that? what does this mean for us? What does this mean for the people in John's day as he writes to them? Here's the application. Number one, bad times are coming, and they do not mean God is not in control. You know, we sometimes get the idea, maybe just the desire, that if I live close enough to God and pray hard enough and read the Bible enough and, and witness good enough, that God will reward me with a good life. That somehow I live good enough, God rewards me. And that, 
good life is variable for us. It means usually a certain level of health, certain level of relationships, certain level of money, a certain level of fulfillment, that none of that would be too hard, but that is just not realistic. Listen, guys, regardless of this is talking about um, a literal seven-year tribulation or a period of tribulation, the truth is we're all going to have tribulation at one point or another. And the Ukrainian church tonight, they've got plenty. That couple that is at St. Jude's Hospital and their child's dying of cancer tonight, they've got plenty of heartache tonight. A person whose child grew up in church and they're so far away from God, on drugs, on the streets, all that kind of stuff, they've got plenty. That person whose child has passed away, they've got plenty of hardships tonight. People living through hard chemo in refugee camps. There's a lot of hardships and bad times right now. And it does not mean God is not in control. We've got to remember Revelation 4 and 6. God is still on his throne. I read this past week Beth Moore's autobiography. And um, I know a little bit about her story. Did not know uh, the intensity of her story from being sexually abused as a child uh, to marrying a guy that she, Keith, they're still married. Uh, did not know that he had... Uh, PTSD when they got married he um, uh, and I'm not talking you know some I, I, I really sometimes people go overboard with with this guy. PTSD is a real thing just because you have a hard time sometimes doesn't mean you have PTSD I'm talking about the nightmares and, and standing up at night and fighting people that aren't there kind of stuff okay when he was two years old he and his brother were playing in the garage and with their little plastic lawnmowers. And they were pouring gasoline into their plastic, like they seen their daddy do with his lawnmower. And uh, there was a water heater or something over the open flame, and the thing exploded. And he was burned over a large percent of his body. His brother was killed. And that's where the PTSD came from. He's also diagnosed as bipolar. Now, that's enough for just about anybody. He also got, um, he was fishing. He, was, he loved to fish. And he was fishing one day, and one of the saltwater fish got him a fin or something, got him in a finger. And, um, yeah, it, it, I forgot what the cause of the name of the disease. It wasn't just an infection or whatever, but it just, the cure, they, they, the doctor said, good news is we have a cure. Bad news is uh, we're fixing to wipe him out for a year or so. And for a year or so, they had to take away all of his PTSD drugs, all of his bipolar drugs, and she said he all he wanted to do was sleep, no affection, no romance, no kindness, just all he wanted to do was just stay in the bed. And this is what, so, so I'm, what I'm saying is she's had a pretty tough life, and a lot, much more so than I ever dreamed. Here's what she writes toward the end of the book. But I am utterly sure of one thing about my turn on this whirling earth, a thing I've never seen, a thing I cannot prove, a thing I cannot always sense. Every inch of this harrowing journey and all the bruising and bleeding and sobbing and pleading, my hand has been tightly knotted, safe and warm with the hand of Jesus. And that's why her autobiography is called All Knotted Up. Second thing, you are not forgotten. You may feel like it, you may look like it, the martyrs probably felt like it at some time. People that are being persecuted by Christ are probably feeling like it at some times. And yet, you are not forgotten. The Bible says in Isaiah that we have been inscribed on the palms of his hand. The nail prints there are the inscriptions of God's love on the hands of our Savior. Non-Christians feel forsaken. Non-Christians feel like they are not loved. Non-Christians feel alone in this universe at times. But we, while we may feel like it, we're not. 
God has never forgotten one of his children. And the third thing is, the only safe place is in Jesus. The only safe place when persecution comes, the only safe place at any point in history is in Christ. Christ died. We're safe in him. The, um, as far as the curse is found, Jesus died for the curse. Uh, we're, that's why I love that song that we sang tonight. We are safe in Christ. He is our cornerstone. He's the one that we hide in. As I said a minute ago, the only safe place to hide from Jesus is in Jesus. Listen, guys. If an earthquake can reduce a city to rubble a minute of five or six seconds, God can bring all these things about just like that. And that's the time we want to make sure that not only we're in Jesus, but last of all, that we are worshiping Jesus. When things are horrible, tribulations abound, and, and, and life is hard, um, we need to turn our eyes upon Christ and remember that He loves us, and remember that He's in control, and to remember that he's on the throne. And to remember just like the martyrs, one day, even today, we're safe in the hands of Christ. Not safe from persecution, not safe from heartache, but we're safe spiritually for all of eternity. And we are even now in his presence. So what do we do? We worship. It's not an easy thing to do when you're being persecuted. It's not an easy thing to do when your heart's broken. It's not an easy thing to do when things are all going against you. But it's the place of peace when you can look up to Christ and say, Lord, you are worthy. You are worthy for me to walk through this journey with you. Would you stand, please, with heads bowed and eyes closed? With heads bowed and eyes closed. If you've never given your heart and life to Christ, boy, no better time than today. There are bad times ahead. Um, we don't know when they're coming. We don't know when they're coming for you and me or when they're coming worldwide. We don't know when Christ is coming back. It may be tonight, tomorrow. I know we're taught to expect it, expect him at any moment. It may be a long time. We just don't know. But today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to be right with God. Today is the day. Have your heart full of Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit before these things come about you. There is coming a day for those who don't give their life to Christ when it will be eternally too late. Father, we bow in prayer. And we thank you, Father, for the rescue. We thank you, Father, for uh, the promise that you never leave us or forsake us, as we mentioned a minute ago. We thank you, Father, as best we know that uh, we will not be here for most of that. Lord, thank you for that. I know that we'll go through tribulations and hardships. Thank you that you'll never forsake us in the midst of those. And Father, I pray, even in the hardships, that we will not forget to look up, to look to you, to focus on worshiping you because you truly are worthy. With heads bowed and eyes closed,